Welcome to the Retzel Health Law Hotspot. Health Law Hotspot is a podcast for physicians and health professionals that covers the legal issues and trends that affect the healthcare industry. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Health Law Hotspot. I'm Erica Adler, shareholder and leader of the healthcare practice at Retzel and Andrus. Today, I'm joined by Christina Kuda, a member of our health law practice and an expert in all things healthcare. And today, we're going to be talking about statute. 1557. Now, you may be wondering, what is that? I've never heard of it. But in fact, this is a statute that went into effect in 2016 and essentially prohibited discrimination based on race, color, national origin, sex, age, and disability when delivering health care if the entity receives some federal financial assistance. There's been some changes in this law since it uh, first got passed, and we're going to talk about where we are now with this law and how that might be changing in light of upcoming elections. So, Christina, tell us a little bit about this statute and what we generally need to know about it. So, as Erica indicated, it was um, enacted in 2016. And basically, it said to healthcare providers, if you receive federal financial assistance, we'll talk in a second about what that is, there's certain things you have to do. And federal financial assistance essentially was if you receive money from Medicaid, Medicare Part A, Medicare Advantage, or meaningful use payments. Interestingly, in 2016, it did not include just receiving Medicare Part B payments. So if you were a physician practice, you didn't take Medicaid, but you did take Medicare Part B, you might not have fallen within this particular requirement. And what it essentially said is that you cannot discriminate based on the reasons that Erica indicated, race, color, national origin, sex, age, and disability. Now, there already were other laws that touched on this a bit, but there sort of was a gap. And the government felt that they needed to be very clear that with respect to healthcare entities, they um, didn't want providers to have any discriminatory practices based on those categories. Now, a couple things that really impacted practices the most was they had to have some sort of plan for people that had limited English proficiency. So first of all, they had to post a notice in their offices that essentially had taglines on it. And the tagline said, you have a right if you're a limited, um, having limited English proficiency to have interpretation or the opportunity to have um, you know, certain assistance with respect to your language. And those taglines had to be written in English and the 15 most spoken languages in the state where your practice operates. Uh, the good thing is the government actually put out a list of what the top 15 languages were in each state to be helpful to the practices. You also had to make reasonable efforts to provide language interpreters at the healthcare provider's cost. So if somebody came into your office and they were, uh, for example, a Polish speaker, you had to make available uh, someone who could interpret the Polish language at your cost, could not pass that on to the patient, and you couldn't make the patient rely on like a family member or maybe like a written translation service or something like that, or using Google Translate, which a lot of people do when they're dealing with different languages, you had to have a qualified interpreter available. The law also talked about um, implementing a written grievance procedure to handle patient complaints regarding discrimination um, related to this law. 
And you also need to have a designated person in charge of these specific complaints and grievance procedures. The grievance procedure and the person in charge was a requirement if the healthcare entity had more than 15 employees. Less than 15 employees, you didn't necessarily have to um, comply with that. Now, as Erica indicated, we're having a little bit of flux in this law and a lot of questions have come up recently, which is why we thought it would be a good idea to discuss it today. In 2020, the law was eliminated significantly. There were amendments. And the amendments basically, one, remove that notice and tagline requirement. So no more requirement to put a notice up saying, you know, if you have limited English proficiency or you need interpretive services, we can help you or we can't discriminate against you for those uh, protected classes I discussed. Also, I told you earlier in 2016, you had to give an interpreter if somebody, if it was deemed reasonable to do so. And reasonable was pretty broad. Unless you were in the middle of nowhere and absolutely could not get an interpreter, including an interpreter service by phone, it would probably be reasonable to get the interpreter. Now they have a four-factor test before you have to have an interpreter for someone with limited English proficiency. And that is one, you look at the number or proportion of the limited English proficiency individuals the programmers likely to encounter. Two, the frequency they're likely to encounter limited um, English proficient individuals who need services. The nature and importance of the entity's healthcare program, activity or service, and the resources available to the entity and the cost of the services. So the provider gets to balance that four-factor test, determine whether they need to provide an interpreter and, and pay the cost for those interpreter services. Also, the 2020 amendments absolutely eliminated having a written grievance procedure or any designated in-person in charge for that procedure. So no longer required. And it also recognized certain exemptions based on conscience or religious freedom. So if there's certain things that you didn't want to comply with due to a consciousness objection or religious objection, you were allowed to do that and basically identify the objection as the reason you were not complying. Now we come to 2022. And in 2022, there were proposed amendments again. So what I just talked about is absolutely the current law in effect. But there are proposals and they're expected to be adopted this year before the next presidential election. So the new amendments say the following. One, Medicare Part B is now considered federal financial assistance. What that means is if you're a doctor and you don't take Medicaid, but you do take Medicare Part B, if these proposals go into effect, you would be required to comply with the 1557 regulations. Also, it specifically says that discrimination based on sex includes sexual orientation and transgender, stat transgender status. It also protects family status and marital status as part of sex discrimination. Interestingly, even though the current version of the law doesn't say that, Health and Human Services says they would interpret the law under the sex discrimination provision as protecting sexual orientation and transgender status because of a court case by the Supreme Court in 2021. Uh, many of the original 2016 requirements would be re-implemented. So providers would have to do that notice of discrimination with the taglines in the 15 languages most spoken in the state where the provider is located. 
They must then take reasonable steps for patients with limited English proficiency to have interpretation services at no cost. Um, this essentially removes that four-factor test that's currently in place. And they also have to implement a written grievance procedure again and designate a responsible person to monitor that program. It also adds a training component where employees are trained on this particular provision. Also, while it didn't eliminate, the proposed rules didn't eliminate that consciousness and religious freedom exception, it did say now OCR will determine them on a case-by-case -case basis. So you may make a consciousness objection, you may also make a religious freedom objection, but OCR is going to review that, that's the Office of Civil Rights, the agency that's charged with enforcing this law, it's going to review that and determine whether or not it feels that those are valid, reasonable exemptions. It also makes it entirely clear that individuals have a private right of action for violations of the law. So if these proposals go into fact, it's clear then that an individual patient could, could um, sue a practitioner if they did not follow these particular laws. Now, the 2020 uh, proposed amendments, the notice and comment period is closed. So there's no longer any time to provide comments on whether you think this is a good idea or a bad idea. Um, traditionally, the year after amendments are proposed, they are adopted. Um, that hasn't happened yet. 2023, there's been no adoption and the year is running out. So I don't expect it to happen this year. But if this is really important to the current administration, my guess is it will be adopted in 2024 prior to the next presidential election to make sure it's on the books in case the current administration is not the acting administration as of the beginning of 2025. So I guess, you know, I don't think a lot of people are aware of this law. It may have been in effect in 2016 through 2020, but I doubt anyone was following it or even knew about it. So part of the issue is, of course, is that if this goes back into effect, you know, how are people going to be informed? Are they going to be aware of it before it takes place, right? Will they have time to make the arrangements for the translation or the taglines or whatever else is needed before it takes effect? I could totally see this being something that yet another administrative burden, not that it's a bad idea, it certainly protects people's rights, but obviously it's yet another layer of of administrative obligation for practices, many of whom are already, to be honest, probably not fully complying with most of the requirements out there. What I find really interesting is that it does remind me of the requirements to provide an interpreter at the practices cost for patients that are deaf or, you know, they're not required to use a family member for interpretation. And I know you and I get quite a lot of questions about how to handle that when you arrange for at your cost for somebody to be there to interpret and then the patient cancels or doesn't show up for the appointment. Can you pass that charge on to the patient? And of course, I'm guessing, you know, there are no FAQs on uh, on this kind of thing yet, but I'm guessing the answer is very similar, which is that it's a cost to practice is going to be forced to eat. Yeah, yeah for sure. And in, in your, your example about people that have um, some hearing challenges and may need interpretation, uh, is important because that's one of the <clears throat> examples that falls under 1557, but also falls under other laws, like the Americans with Disability Act or other section 204, 504, excuse me, or other laws that might impact those particular um, individuals 
So the reason that the amendments happened in 2020 was essentially because the administration at the time thought they were duplicative and burdensome. You had mentioned that, you know, they're not administrative burdens. Um, but I think the, the current administration believes that any burdens outweigh the be aren't, aren't outweighed, pardon me, by the benefits of the of complying with the law. But that also brings me to the point where even if the 1557 amendments currently proposed are not implemented, there are other laws to consider. There's things like the ADA, there's other discrimination laws in the federal government. Also, states may have laws that would say that you have to provide certain interpretation services or you have to treat patients in a certain way and cannot um, discriminate against certain classes of, of individuals. So it's always important to sort of check what your state laws might be and what other federal laws might impact, not just the 1557 regulations. Right. All right. Well, this is we're going to keep an eye on this and keep everybody updated uh, as to what actually happened. We'll uh, also maybe give some more specific guidance if these changes do uh, go into effect, reminding everybody of how they can bring their practices into compliance. In and time. The good thing is, too, that the government doesn't decide on a Tuesday they're going to adopt the amendments on Wednesday of the next day. There will be lead time. There will be, you know, a few months at least for practices to sort of ramp up enforcement and realize what they need to do. And last time in 2016, the government actually did put out sort of a form notice with some form taglines in many, many languages. So practices could adopt them without having sort of reinvent the wheel. So I would assume this would happen again and there would be sufficient lead time for uh, practices to prepare. Perfect. All right. Well, thank you, Christina Kuda, for your excellent insight on this topic. And this has been the Health Law Hotspot. You can see the rest of our podcast at ralaw.com. And we hope that you'll come see us again as we cover more and more topics. Thanks so much. The Retzel Health Law Hotspot is made available by the firm and its attorneys for educational purposes and to provide general information, not to provide specific legal advice. Use of the Wetzel Health Law Hotspot does not create an attorney-client relationship between you and the firm or any of its attorneys. The Wetzel Health Law Hotspot should not be used as a substitute for competent legal advice, and you should contact an attorney in your state about any legal needs or questions you may have.